Thank you for joining us on the sermon podcast for Mars Hill Cumberland Presbyterian Church. We love being able to distribute our sermons in this format, but we would love it even more if you could join us in person at 5208 Crow Mountain Road in Russellville, Arkansas, or online at the Mars Hill Cumberland Presbyterian Church Facebook page. We have Sunday school classes at 9 a.m. with a worship service right after at 10 a.m. Let's now prepare our hearts to hear a message from God's Word. morning again. I'm going to do something that I am not used to doing. I'm going to preach a topical sermon. Normally I preach expository and textual sermons where I kind of take time walking through a text. Um, This morning I'm going to uh, preach a topical sermon and I'm going to be all over the place this morning. Uh, but I feel like it's relevant, and and I feel like this is what God would have me preach this morning because I, I couldn't get away from it, and I tried. Because I kept rolling this idea around in my mind, and I thought, well, Lord, this would be something good for me to write as a pamphlet, or this would be something good for me to write as a blog post. This, this doesn't really seem appropriate for a sermon. Um, but here we are. <laughs> And so our, our first text we're going to look at this morning is we're going to be in Acts chapter 5, and we're going to uh, read verses 12 to 20 and 24 to 39 in that same chapter. The title of the sermon this morning is, Shall the Modernists Win? Uh, that's the question of the hour this morning, and after we read our text and pray, I'll elaborate more on why I've selected that title, Shall the Modernists Win? So Acts chapter 5, verses 12 to 20, and then 24 to 39, and when you have that selection, um, stand and we'll hear the reading of God's Word. Many signs and wonders were being done among the people through the hands of the apostles. They were all together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, but the people spoke well of them. Believers were added to the Lord in increasing numbers, multitudes of both men and women, and as a result, they would carry the sick out into the streets and lay them on cots and mats, so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. In addition, a multitude came together from the towns surrounding Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Then the high priest rose up, he and all who were with him, who belonged to to the party of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. So they arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail during the night and brought them out and said, Go out and go and stand in the temple and tell the people all about this life. All right, verse 24. As the captain of the temple police and the chief priests heard these things, they were baffled about them, wondering what would come of this. Someone came and reported to them, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the commander went with the servants and brought them in without force, because they were afraid the people might stone them. After they brought them in, they had, stand, they had them stand before the Sanhedrin, and the high priest asked, Didn't we strictly order you not to teach this name? Look, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are, and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the apostles replied, We must obey God rather than people. Uh, The God of your ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had murdered by hanging him on a tree. God exalted this man to the right hand as ruler and savior to to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill him. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was respected by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered the men to be taken outside for a little while. He said to the men of Israel, be careful about what, you're, about what you're about to do to those men. Some time ago, Thaddeus rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men railed to him. He was killed, and all his followers were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and attracted a following. He also perished, and all his followers were scattered. 
So in the present case, I tell you, stay away from these men and leave them alone. For if this plan or this work is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may even be found fighting against God. They were persuaded by him. This ends the reading of God's word, the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this passage. Um, Lord, we thank you for the fact that all of your plans and all of your agendas will come to fruition. Lord, we thank you for the fact that no man can frustrate your plans or your sovereignty. And so, Father, this morning we ask that you would open up this word to us. We ask, Lord, that you would uh, open up our hearts and minds to hear the truth of, of this word this morning so that we would leave here knowing more about you and understanding why we believe the things that we claim to believe. We thank you, Lord, for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so the first part of this sermon is pretty much going to be a history lesson, and as soon as you hear that, you're going to tune out. No one likes history. You had enough history when you were in high school, but this is important because we're seeing history play out before us. And, of course, I'm sure you've heard the phrase, those who fail to remember history are what? Are doomed to repeat it. And so I'm going to give you a little bit of history this morning about the fundamentalist modernist controversy. This was something that occurred in the United States in the late 1800s, early 1900s. It lasted for a long period of time, and I would even argue that part of it is still lasting today. Uh, the fundamentalist controversy, the fundamentalist modernist controversy came up uh, because there was a lot of theologians who were being trained in, in Bible colleges and seminaries across the nation, and a lot of what they were teaching in these Bible colleges and seminaries were basically that the Bible was nothing more than a glorified fairy tale. Uh, all of these supernatural things don't really happen in our world today. And so, you know, we can just kind of dismiss the supernatural parts of it. And I'm sure you heard me talk about that to some degree uh, whenever I talked about what the Jefferson Bible was. And, but that's, what we're, that's, that's how pastors were being trained at that time. That's what pastors were being taught. Um, many pastors and theologians were beginning to disregard the authority of Scripture because of all of this. Uh, they began to do away with biblical doctrines that, they, that, that might upset or offend people with quote-unquote modern sensibilities. So they didn't talk about the virgin birth of Jesus. They didn't talk about his resurrection. They didn't talk about the atonement by the blood of Jesus. In response to this, Biola University was formed. In 1908, the Biblical Institute of Los Angeles was formed to train pastors and missionaries in the ways of the doctrines of the Bible. So they wanted to train pastors and missionaries who not only believed the Bible, but could defend why they believed it. So they trained them in biblical scholarship, apologetics, hermeneutics, biblical theology, all of the, all of the foundational things that, that, that make up our theology. Now, that following August in 1908, the Reverend A.C. Dixon, whom I hope is related to me in some way, um, held a series of meetings in, the auditorium in, in an auditorium in Los Angeles, and Biola's founder, Lyman Stewart, had heard many positive reports of Dixon's vigorous debates with modernist theologians at the University of Chicago Divinity School. So Stewart was there listening to Dixon preach, and after he heard him preach several nights in a row, he, he believed that Dixon had the intellectual strength, the vision, and the temperament to lead the, a literary project that he had been thinking about for some time. So Dixon agreed to meet with Stewart for a private discussion, and after hearing Stewart's plan for this project, uh, Dixon was very happy about it. He responded, you know, it's of the Lord, let us pray about this. And so this literary project that Lyman Stewart had in mind became known as The Fundamentals. Now, you may not know what the fundamentals are, um, so, so let me just give you an overview. The fundamentals are a series of 90 essays that lay out biblically the necessary doctrines of the Christian faith. Original sin, the divine and human natures of Christ, the literal resurrection of Jesus, the return of Christ and final judgment, the historicity of the Old Testament, and other topics that are necessary to understanding the Christian faith. So the fundamentals began to light a fire 
for workers in the church that began to lose hope that the basic doctrines of the Christian faith were being done away with by the very people who claimed to be Christians. The fundamentals, the fundamentals was a source of great encouragement for people because finally people are talking about these things in the Bible and taking them seriously. So this sparked outrage among the modernist and liberal scholars of that day to the point that on Sunday, May 21st, 1922, so, we're, so just 100 years and seven days ago, Pastor Harry Emerson Fosdick of First Presbyterian Church in New York City, he mounted the pulpit and he preached a sermon titled, Shall the Fundamentalists Win? And in this sermon, he lambasted conservative fundamentalist Christians for believing in old, outdated ideas, where he accused fundamentalists of being unloving and intolerant of enlightened and educated people who claim to be Christians, right? Sounds familiar, doesn't it? And so here's what, uh, here's what Thomas Kidd had to say about Fosdick's sermon. He said, Fosdick portrayed the battle between the fundamentalists and modernists in American denominations as a reprise of the biblical showdown between the apostles and the Jewish leaders in Acts chapter 5. Modernists, he proclaimed, were operating in the innovative spirit of Peter and the disciples who represented the finest flowering out that Judaism ever had. The fundamentalist to Fosdick manifested the attitude of the stodgy, entrenched Jewish, Jewish interest who wished to prevent any progressive adaptation of Judaism in the new era of Christian revelation. Fosdick commended the wisdom of the Jewish leader, scholar Gamaliel, who warned the other Jewish leaders in Acts to leave the new Christians alone. You know, for if this counsel be, work of, be the work of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, ye cannot overthrow it, lest haply ye be found even to fight against God. In other words, fundamentalists were trying to halt the liberals' accommodation of Christianity to modern sensibilities. But they would do better to accept the presence of modernists in denominations and seminaries. Let God determine by his providence whether traditional or modernist thought would win today. Let me tell you something. That last line from Thomas Kidd speaks volumes. Let, the, let God determine by his providence whether traditional or modernist thought would win the day. Well, let me tell you something. Modernist thought has not won the day. And you can see that in the decline of mainline liberal denominations going downhill. Listen, they, listen, the United Methodist Church is on life support. The PCUSA is on life support. And the Cumberland Presbyterian Church, if we continue to allow modernist thinking, if we continue to allow modernist interpretation of Scripture, our, our denomination itself will be on life support. Why? Because people want truth. They don't want these ideas about how you can make your own truth and how you can make the Bible any way to, to read any way you want it. They want something solid. Amen. Listen, we live in a turbulent world. Nothing is guaranteed. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. We need something that can stand the test of time. So let me give you a little background on Harry Emerson Fosdick. Harry Emerson Fosdick graduated from Union Theological Seminary in 1904. By the way, Union Theological Seminary is the uh, same seminary I told you about a while back that held a chapel service where they made those in attendance confess their sins to plants. Right, so, so this seminary has been corrupt for over 100 years now. You know, that's, all, that's also the same seminary where their president said on Easter a few years ago that it doesn't matter if Christ really rose from the dead. Right? So this seminary has always been a godless hive of flagrant idolatry and downright theological and philosophical narcissism where they've attempted to recreate the God of the Bible in their own twisted image. So Fosdick was ordained initially as a Northern Baptist. And now you hear that and you think, okay... It's 1922. What's a Baptist doing in a Presbyterian pulpit? Well, he became the pastor of First Presbyterian Church in New York, where he eventually preached the sermon, Shall the Fundamentalist Win? 
This sermon was so controversial that the Presbytery launched an investigation into the contents of Fosdick's weekly sermons, and he, was, and he was eventually forced to resign from that church. And when he resigned from that church, <clears throat> John Rockefeller said, you know what, Fosdick, I like your style. I like, I like your preaching, because, you know, John Rockefeller... Uh, didn't really care for all those teachings in the Bible about how it's harder for a rich man to go through the eye of a needle, right? Uh, the, uh, it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. That didn't, that didn't sit well with Rockefeller. So Rockefeller said, you know what, Fosdick, I like your style. I'll give you a whole boatload of money and we'll build a church and you can pastor that church. And so that's where Riverside Church in New York came from. It still stands today. Clarence McCartney, who was an actual Presbyterian minister, who, considered a, who was considered a fundamentalist, he published a response to Fosdick called Shall Unbelief Win, where he pointed out that it was the confession of the Presbyterian Church to believe and preach a virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, where it was the confession of the Presbyterian Church to believe and preach a literal resurrection, where it was the confession of the church to believe and preach all of these things that Fosdick stood against. And this is what, this is what uh, McCartney said in Shall Unbelief Win. He said, Dr. Fosdick is not a Presbyterian. And he stands in a Presbyterian pulpit and gets his bread from a Presbyterian congregation. In view of this fact, how can his holding the purely naturalistic account of the stories of the birth of Jesus be in harmony with his preaching in the pulpit of a church whose creed, which was never revoked, declares the Son of God, when the fullness of time was, was come, did take upon him man's nature, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance. This article of the creed may be impossible for the modern mind to hold. It may be myth or rubbish to them. But myth or fact, truth or rubbish, it is a solemn declaration of the church from which Dr. Fosdick takes his bread. Mm. Now, if you stuck with me for this long this morning, you may be wondering, this is all well and good, but what does this mean? Why does it matter? It matters because the fundamentalist modernist controversy is still going strong and it's rearing its ugly head in our own denomination. I want you to see that historically this is nothing new. I also want you to see that just as there was no reason for the Presbyterian Church to bow to the agenda of Harry Fosdick, who was not even a Presbyterian, there is also no reason for us to bow to the agendas of people who claim to be Cumberland Presbyterians and yet deny our confession of faith. I would even go a step farther and say that they claim to be Christians and deny the very fundamentals of the Christian faith. Today, among our own ranks, there exists a theological and philosophical offspring of Harry Emerson Fosdick. And like Fosdick, they deny Christ's virgin birth. They deny Christ's virtuous life. They deny Christ's vicarious death. They deny Christ's victorious resurrection. And they deny Christ's visible return. Now, I may not have time to get through all of this today. But my plan is to show you where these doctrines are taught in Scripture and in the Confession of Faith and show you where they're being denied in the world of evangelicalism and then show you what the cost of denying such doctrines are. So as we get into the basis of these doctrines, I want you to see that all five of these doctrines are issues of biblical authority, theological consistency, and historical integrity. First of all, it, it comes down to biblical authority. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 to 17 tells us all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. It's profitable for doctrine. It's profitable for, corrupt, for, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And yet, what's happening? What's happening is we... We've denied that. We've denied the biblical authority of Scripture. And yet, in our own confession of faith, in, conf in, in our own confession of faith, in chapter 1, section 5, it says God inspired persons of the covenant community to write the Scriptures. In and through the Scriptures, God speaks about creation, sin, 
judgment, salvation, the church, and the growth of believers. The scriptures are the infallible rule of faith and practice, the authoritative guide for Christian living. That's what we proclaim to believe as Cumberland Presbyterians. When it comes to determining what the theology of the church is, when it comes to determining what is taught and defended in the church, when it comes to what we say we believe as a body, we have far too long used ourselves and what we fear other people will think as the standard for our faith and practice rather than the Bible. And so these doctrines, these five doctrines, are a matter of, of biblical authority. So if the Bible says it, then, then we have no right to try and change it. We have no right to try and question it. If the Bible says it, that's what it is. Next, it's a matter of theological consistency. It's a simple question. Let's take the virgin birth, for example. It's a simple question. Is Jesus really the Son of God? If he isn't, if, if, is Jesus really the Son of God if he isn't born of a virgin? No. That's why, John, that's why in John chapter 6, when Jesus is teaching that he is the bread from heaven, he's directly referring to himself as, as he's, re, he's re, sorry, he's directly referring to God as his father. And John 6, 41 tells us that the Jews started grumbling. Well, why did the Jews start grumbling? Because they didn't believe God was his father. They didn't believe that he was the son of God. John 6, 42 says they were saying, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph? whose father and mother we know? How can he say, I have come down from heaven? Well, they didn't believe that God was his father. They didn't believe that his mother was a virgin when he was conceived. Well, if Mary wasn't a virgin when Jesus was conceived, then that means that Joseph or some other male human has to be his father. It's not that complicated. So the doctrine of the virgin birth, for example, where all of this begins, is a part of the hinge upon which the entire Christian faith rests. <coughs> Millard Erickson tells us that if we do not hold to the virgin birth, despite the fact that the Bible asserts it, then we have compromised the authority of the Bible. And there is in principle no reason why we should hold to its other teachings. Thus rejecting the virgin birth has implications reaching far beyond the doctrine itself. So if Jesus wasn't born of a virgin, then he wasn't the Son of God. If he wasn't the Son of God, then he couldn't have been sinless. If he wasn't sinless, then death had a legal right to hold him when he went to the cross since the wages of sin is death. If death had a legal right to hold him, then he couldn't have risen from the grave. If he didn't rise from the grave, then our faith is worthless and we're still in our sins, according to 1 Corinthians 15. So do you see how all of that works? It's a matter of theological consistency. We cannot abort any fundamental doctrine of Christianity and think that we can keep the rest of it intact. You know, I think it's funny. The main complaint from people is that, the main, one of the main complaints I hear from people is they say, well, you know, I don't appreciate the church's teaching on sexual ethics. I think it's too strict. I don't appreciate the church's teachings on abortion. I think it's, I think it's not inclusive enough of, of, you know, a woman's right to choose, you know, what happens to her body and all this stuff. But what you never hear about is people having a problem with the church's teaching on forgiveness. Isn't that funny? People love having their sins forgiven, but they also love sin. <laughs> and, they, and, so, and so the point is, you cannot keep one fundamental doctrine of Christianity intact. Or you cannot, you cannot do away with one part of the fundamental doctrine of Christianity and think that the rest of it will stay intact. <coughs> you cannot do away with any part of the life death, resurrection, birth of Christ, and think that anything else he says has weight. It's also a matter of historical integrity. The Apostles' Creed that we read this morning is our call to worship. The Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed both proclaim that Christ was born of a virgin and suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was died, buried, and rose again on the third day, and that one day he will, turn, he will return again to judge the living and the dead. Now this is important because it's a matter of historical integrity on two accounts. Number one, 
These have been the confessions of the church at large for the better part of 1,700 years. Do you know how old this document is? It was written in the mid-300s. So for the better part of 1,700 years, this is what every Christian throughout the ages has confessed to believe. What that means is that the basic doctrines of the Christian faith have not changed. We've been, seeing, we've been saying the same thing this whole time. So if we've been saying the same thing this whole time, how does that make us look if all of a sudden we change our story? Well, it makes us look dishonest. This is how people want to make us look when we say when they say that we shouldn't believe in an actual virgin birth or we shouldn't believe in an actual resurrection. The second account upon which there, this is a matter of historical integrity is that both of the creeds, both the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, mention the fact that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. All four accounts of Jesus' trial in the, in the four Gospels mention Pontius Pilate. So we understand that the Gospels are just reporting what's happening. That's why they mention Pilate. But why is he mentioned in the creeds and confessions of the church? Why do we even utter his name when recalling what the church believes about Jesus' death? That's a good question, isn't it? Because why is Pilate so important to the story? Well, Terence Klein gives us this answer. He says, the Nicene Creed, and of course the Apostles' Creed, which so many Christians still profess weekly in our liturgies, it was adopted in 325 A.D., as an essential statement of what we believe. It is cosmic in scope, proclaiming the creation of the world by God the Father, its redemption by His incarnate Son, Jesus Christ, and the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Yet this mystic declaration links all its cosmography to a concrete moment in history. It does this by referencing the names of two mere mortals. He was born of the Virgin Mary, and he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered, died, and was buried. This is a matter of historical integrity because Pilate was a prominent figure that we can look back on in history and know that he had a place of esteem that the that in we know that Pilate had a place of esteem in that world. And so the fact that the Gospels report that Jesus had this interaction and the fact that we remember this interaction in the Creed is a reminder to ourselves and each other that this really happened. It's not a fairy tale. It's not simply a nice moral story. This is a matter of dogma. This is a matter of life or death. This is a matter of heaven or hell. If you do not affirm the historical reality of Jesus' birth, life, death, resurrection, and return, you are not, in any sense of the word, a Christian. And so, let's move on to these five essential doctrines. Again, I may not get through all of this this morning. But let's first talk about the virgin birth. Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. And of course, we all know this story. Right? This is what we were raised on. We read the story around Christmas time every year. We heard it preached, taught. Luke chapter 1, verse 26 through 31. It says, In the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came to her and said, Greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled. By the, she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. Then the angel told her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. Look at verse 34. Mary asked the angel, how can this be since I have what? Since I have not had sexual relations with a man. So Luke, Luke 1 tells us that Mary never had sexual relations with a man. In Matthew's account, Matthew 1.18, he tells us that Mary was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. And this begs the question, why is this doctrine important? Kevin DeYoung tells us that if Jesus' birth 
were like any other human birth through the union of a human father and mother, we would question His full divinity. So if Jesus came into the world like any other human being, there would be this question in the back of our minds, is He really who He says He is? The virgin birth is necessary to secure both a real human nature and a completely divine nature. As Christians, we affirm the two natures of Christ. We affirm that He is fully God and fully man. And it's only possible if Mary was really a virgin. Think about what DeYoung is saying. If Jesus came into the world any other way, there would be this doubt about Jesus' origins. However, 1 Corinthians 1.27 tells us that God chose what is foolish to confound the wise, and He chose what is weak to confound the mighty. Well, nothing sounds more foolish to secular ears than the idea that a virgin could give birth. Nothing sounds weaker than a story about a man going to the cross in our place, putting our sin to death, and rising up so that we can rise up with Him. It sounds weak, it sounds foolish, but it's weakness. It's this weakness and it's this foolishness that the Bible says gives us power. That's why 1 Corinthians 1.18 tells us that the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. And so that's the virgin birth. And if we do away with that doctrine, it has consequences. Now let's see the virtuous life of Christ. There's a few places in Scripture I'm going to go here. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, the writer says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but in all points he was tempted as we are, yet without sin. Then 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, the Apostle Paul says, For he, being God, God the Father, for God the Father made him, God the Son, for God the Father made God the Son, who knew no sin to be sin for us. He knew no sin. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that what? That we might become the righteousness of God in him. Our own catechism, the Cumberland Presbyterian Catechism, in question 31, it asked this question, was Jesus like other human beings? The question is, yes and no. He was both fully human and fully God. He was tempted as we are, but he did not sin. And so this is what we affirm as Cumberland Presbyterians. As Cumberland Presbyterians, we affirm the sinlessness of Christ. Think about this. If Jesus, had, if Jesus had sin, if Jesus had sin in his life in any way, shape, or form, then would there be any significance to him dying and going to the cross? Absolutely not. If Jesus had sin in any way, shape, or form, then there would have been no significance to him bearing the sin of the world. If Jesus was a sinner, then why did any of that matter? Of course, Jesus carried sin to the cross, but he would have carried his own sin. But that's not what happened. What makes the event of Jesus even dying, uh, what makes the event of Jesus dying unique at all is the fact that he is the only human being that has no logical reason to die. If the wages of sin is death and Jesus has no sin, then there's no reason for him to die. <clears throat> but what happens is in the garden, Jesus said, not my will but yours. Jesus submitted himself to the will of his Father to take the sin of the world upon himself. And when he did that, he agreed to take responsibility for sin that did not belong to him. And he didn't just take responsibility for the sin. He took the sin itself. Which leads us to his vicarious death. So we've got the virgin birth, the victorious life, I'm sorry, the virgin birth, the virtuous life, and now we've got his vicarious death. I may get through this quicker than what I intended. <laughs> I better get through it quick. We've got about seven minutes left. <laughs> 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Here's a few more scriptures. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. 
Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also what? For the whole world. Let me tell you something real quick about that verse. Whenever I came under the care of the Presbytery about, oh, four years ago? I guess it would have been four years ago now. Man, this has been a long time. Um, when I came under the care of the Presbytery four years ago, I was a proud and loud, avid five-point Galvanist, which meant I affirmed all five doctrines of the basic tenets of Calvinism, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. The Cumberland Presbyterian Church, part of the reason they broke off from the mother church was over Calvinism. They broke, off, they broke off over the doctrine of limited atonement. And so here I am. I'm coming into a church. I mean, I've, I've seen the confession of faith, and I believed most of it, and I was like, well, you know, I think I can get away with being a Calvinist here. I was pretty, I was pretty firm in that. I was like, well, I think I can get, a, get away with being a Calvinist here as long as I'm not too flamboyant about it. Um, and I did for a little while. But as I began to type CP Theology 1 and 2, and as I began to read the Bible thoroughly, trying to read it without the lens of, of traditional Calvinism, and then I went back and read Calvin's Institutes, and I went back and read the Westminster <coughs> that we you know, eventually did away with. We did away with the Westminster so that we could make our own creed and confession. I realized that the Cumberland Presbyterians had it right after all. What happened was the doctrine of the limited the doctrine of limited atonement. The, so the doctrine of limited atonement is this idea that God has an elect people, and we know from Ephesians one that God does have an elect people. But the idea is that when Jesus came to earth and died for for the sins of the world, he didn't actually die for the sins of every individual. He only died for the elect. He only died for those who would be his children. And I believed that for a long time. And so, whenever I got to studying on this and researching it, I realized that the doctrine of limited atonement was a doctrine that was not found in Scripture, but rather it was an invented doctrine as an overreaction against the errors of, er of Arminianism. And of course, that's a whole other history lesson in and of itself that I'm not going to get into. But I realized that this doctrine was invented as a way to keep people from sliding into the, the other ditch that was also problematic. And so what happens is, when we encounter a problem, what, what I realized about human nature is that whenever we encounter a problem, um, we try to fix it. And when we try to fix it in our own strength without relying on the Spirit of God, we end up, over we end up over correcting and creating a whole other problem. Right? So, what happened was the Synod of Dort, uh, which of course you can Google this when you get home, I'm not going to get into it, but the Synod of Dort saw the problem of people believing in the doctrine of Arminianism, which was basically the idea that, um, you know, you could choose God for yourself anytime you wanted, you could, and in that case, you could also forfeit your salvation, so you could lose your salvation. Uh, the idea was that salvation is a work of uh, grace plus your works, plus your decision, plus your determination. And the Synod of Dort wanted to protect, against, protect people against that idea because they wanted to promote the idea that salvation was by grace and grace alone, right? So it sounds good. The problem is they overcorrected. They took every point of Arminian doctrine and without lining it up with Scripture, they just saw all of it with error. They just saw all of Arminianism as error. And so they overcorrected and created this new set of doctrines that people had to believe. And those weren't entirely in line with Scripture either. Now, I say all of that to say that as I took Cumberland Presbyterian Theology 1 and 2 with, uh, uh, with, with uh, oh, I can't think of his name. Is it with who? Isn't it yeah, James Lively. I took CP Theology 1 with James Lively, and I took CP Theology 2 with Dr. Michael Qualls, and I read 
Uh, I read Hubert Morrow's commentary on our confession of faith. I read Roy Hall's commentary on our confession of faith. And I went back and I saw, okay, limited atonement is an overcorrection. The, the idea that Jesus atoned for the sins of the world is biblical and it can also stand in line with the idea that God has an elect people. Why? Because the Bible wasn't written as a systematic theology. The Bible was not written as a systematic theology textbook. The Bible was written to simply report who Jesus was, what he did, and why his death and resurrection matters. The Bible is the story of God's redemption for his people. It doesn't have to line up with our modern sensibilities. It doesn't have to line up with what we think theology should look like. It doesn't have to line up with our own personal convictions if our personal convictions are contradictory to Scripture. The Bible is simply God telling us the story of His people and we have to accept it for what it is. No, I'm glad that's clear as mud now. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. For the love of Christ compels us, since we have reached this conclusion that one died for all. Therefore, all die. And he died for all, so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. And so what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 5 is that Jesus died, but the reason for Jesus' death is so that we should no longer live for ourselves. See, we have this way of telling the gospel, and we, and we tell it this way for years because that's how we heard it. But what we don't understand is it's not the whole story. We, we, t we tell the story of the gospel sometimes in an incomplete way. What we say is that Jesus died so that we wouldn't have to die. And that's, that's not the whole story. Jesus died so that we could die with him. And Jesus rose so that we could rise with Him. Because there's no way that you can die to your sins apart from the work of Christ. There's no way that you can be sanctified apart from the work of Christ. There's no way that you can live for His glory apart from the work of His Spirit in your life. And all of that's only possible by His life, death, and resurrection. And so Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 that he, who, that he died so that we should no longer live for ourselves, but live for Him who died and was raised. 1 Peter 2.24 He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. The purpose of Christ's death was so that we could die with Him, and in dying to sin, we could be raised into newness of life. If we simply say that Jesus died so that we could live, then we're leaving out part of the story. The whole story before it, the whole story is before us, right? So the whole story is that before Jesus, we were dead in our sins. That's what Ephesians two tells us. And being dead in our sins meant that the parts of us that were alive were alive to sin. We were alive to self. We were alive to Satan. But Ephesians 2.2 tells us that we lived according to the ways of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. And Paul goes on to say that toward the end of the verse, that same spirit that we, that we walked in before Christ is that very same spirit that's now working in those who are disobedient. So when Christ died, his death made a way for that sinful part of us to be put to death. When Christ died, His death made a way for that sinful part of us that was alive to be put to death. And when Christ rose, He, he made a way for that dead part of us to come alive. Romans 6, tells us that we, Romans 6 tells us that we see that idea reflected in baptism. Our old man gets put to death in the water and the new man comes to life. And we struggle with that sometimes because sanctification is not a complete work, and it will not be a complete work until we die and go be with Jesus. Martin Luther kind of understood that. He said the old man is drowned in baptism, but there are some days when he sure is a good swimmer. 
Christ died so that you would die with Him, and He was raised back up so that He could bring you to life. Which brings us to the victorious resurrection of Christ. I'm not going to labor this point. I'm going to, get, I'm going to run through these. I'm not going to labor this point too much because I feel like the resurrection is all I've been talking about for the last few weeks. And so if you need a primer, go back and listen to the last two sermons. Um, I ran through 1 Corinthians 15. And uh, <clears throat> so the resurrection, the victorious resurrection of Christ is essential to, to what we believe. Our confession of faith in chapter 3, section 9 tells us that Jesus Christ willingly suffered sin and death for every person. On the third day after being crucified, Christ was raised from the dead, appeared to many disciples, and afterward ascended to God and makes intercession for all persons. I'm not going to read it because I covered it thoroughly two or three weeks ago, but in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us that if Christ did not rise from the dead, then, all, then our faith is worthless and we're still in our sins. We are to be pitied among all people because our entire faith and our entire way of life is banking on the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And if that's not true, then none of this matters. However, it is true, and we know it's true because we can trust God's Word and we can trust God's Spirit when it testifies to us about the truth of these things. That's why our confession of faith goes on to say in chapter 3, section 11, God's work of reconciliation in Christ Jesus occurred at a particular time and place, yet its powers and benefits extend to the believer in all ages from the beginning of the world. It is communicated by the Holy Spirit and through such instruments as God is pleased to employ. That's why Paul can say in Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, that because we are sons, God sent His Spirit into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. I'm reminded of Charles Spurgeon's testimony, where he said that God was a harsh taskmaster before he got saved. He said he heard other people talking with tears in their eyes about our Lord's forgiveness, but he couldn't. And then one night in an old primitive Methodist chapel, he heard the gospel from a lay preacher who didn't even have a sermon prepared for that night. He just kept quoting Isaiah 45, 22, Look unto me and be ye saved. And then the lights turned on and he saw God no longer as a harsh taskmaster, but as a loving father. And it's just like that for you and I. As soon as the Holy Spirit turns the lights on in our hearts and our minds, we see God for who He really is. We see God as a loving Father. We don't see Him as someone sitting at, we don't see as someone sitting at a judgment bar waiting to throw the gavel down and condemn us. We see Him as a, as a loving Father with His arms wide open. And the reason people will appear before God and go to hell and suffer that judgmental side of God is because that's all they've ever seen Him as. They refuse to see Him as a loving Father, and so they will experience Him as a judge. And so the Holy Spirit opens up our hearts and minds, and when we see the truth of who God is for us in Christ, we can't unsee it. And it's all as a result of Christ's victorious resurrection. And so then we move on to the visible return of Christ. Look with me into Revelation chapter 1 and we'll land this plane. By the way, like I said a few weeks ago, a preacher gets five closings. Right, so that's, that's my first one. <laughs> if I go over five, I'm a liar. You've got to put me under church discipline. Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 7. <coughs> And so John is writing this part of Revelation. Uh, John wrote all of Revelation, by the way. Uh, but, he, but John is writing this section of Revelation, and he says, John, to the seven churches in Asia, grace and peace to you from the one who is, who was, and who is to come. And from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood, there's his vicarious death, and made us a kingdom of a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. 
So what's the three main things that John wants us to know about Jesus from these verses? He wants us to know that He loved us, He saved us, and He's coming back for us. That's the three main things that John wants us to know about Jesus right out of the gate in these verses. And so, what, what's Paul say about the, about the second coming? About coming back for us? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, he says, We do not want you to be uninformed. That's how he opens up that section. Listen, there's a lot of people who are uninformed when it comes to the coming of the Lord. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. People are, you know, and so what Paul is saying is that people are insecure because they're uninformed. So people are left to grieve. People are left to have no hope because they're uninformed concerning the coming of the Lord. He says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again in the same way, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For we say this to you by a word from the Lord, we who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So, this is how Paul lays out the second coming. Notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say how there's going to be a rapture and then we'll wait during a seven-year tribulation period and then finally the end will come. No, the day of the Lord is coming on a day when no one knows. Matthew 24, 36 tells us that no man knows the day or the hour of our Lord's return. And so when, he, and so when the Lord comes back, the dead in Christ will rise first and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up with Him and we're not going to play harp on a cloud for all eternity. We're going to go greet Him as He comes back to earth to slay His enemies and establish His kingdom on earth. And so here's the, here's the idea, right? The idea that, that people use for this passage is they say, well, this passage teaches that there's going to be a rapture and that there, there's going to be this seven-year tribulation period. Right? And so the idea is that, is that the rapture is going to happen, then the seven-year tribulation period is going to play out, and then we're just going to be waiting in heaven until it's, time for, until it's time for us to come back. No, 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 that's not how 1 Thessalonians 4 reads. And so people are confused. They read that passage and they think, and, and, and of course part of the reason they're confused is because they read it outside of its cultural context. They're confused because they think, well, if we're going to go meet the Lord in the air, why are we going to come straight back down? Well, that's a good question. Unless you know the cultural context. The cultural context in which 1 Thessalonians was written is it was written during a time in that world where when a king or a prince would go off to fight, by the way, at that time, world leaders went to fight with their armies. They didn't stay in the White House and let everybody else do it for them. Amen. So during that time... Kings and princes would go out to fight with their armies, and when they would come back victorious, the citizens of that city or that nation would actually come outside of the city gates to greet them as they came back into the city. And so what Paul is depicting is he's depicting this idea that when the Lord comes back, those of us who are in Christ... those of us who are Christians, we're actually going to rise up to, to meet him in the air. We're actually going to rise up to meet him and greet him as he comes back. And then, Revelation 19, 20, and 21 will happen. Or rather, Revelation 19 will happen. Revelation 20 is kind of cyclical. I'm not going to get into that. Revelation 19 will happen. Here's what Revelation 19 says. Revelation 19, 11 through 16. Then I saw heaven open, and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True, and with justice he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came out of his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an eye 
iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh that says King of Kings and Lord of Lords. By the way, did you know Jesus had a tattoo on his thigh? It says King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Don't let anyone tell you Jesus doesn't have tattoos, amen? Uh, and so Jesus comes back and he's got this title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he's going to come back and he's going to establish his kingdom. And right after that, throughout the rest of the chapter in Revelation 19, John says that he saw an angel standing in the sun calling for the birds of the air to come and devour the flesh of kings, commanders, and military personnel who fought against the Lamb. And then, chapter, and then the chapter ends in verse 21 with Jesus destroying those who rejected Him with the sword of His mouth. So He's coming back, and He's coming back to open up a can on all His enemies. That's what Revelation 1.7 and Zechariah 12.10 means when it says that they will look upon Him whom they have pierced and they shall mourn for Him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over Him as one weeps over a firstborn. So our confession of faith also speaks about the judgment. Confession, our confession of faith, this is like the last statement in the confession of faith. It says, God's judgment transcends this life, ever standing against all human attempts to deny dependence on God and to live without repentance, faith, and love. Those who reject God's salvation in Jesus Christ remain alienated from God and in hopeless bondage to sin and death, which is hell. Here's the last statement. In the consummation of history at the coming of Jesus Christ, the kingdoms of the world shall become the kingdom of the Lord and of the Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. Alright, we're going to wrap things up. That's my second closing. Let's go back to Acts 5 where we read at the beginning. We're going to put a bow on this. First we landed the plane, now we're putting a bow on it. In Acts 5, you've got Peter and John being supernaturally released from prison after they've been arrested for preaching about Jesus. And look what happens. In verses 27 and 28, the Sanhedrin asked them, Didn't we tell you to stop preaching in that name? Peter said, Yeah, you did. But it's better for us to obey God rather than man. See, Harry Emerson Fosdick, the preacher I mentioned earlier, he tried to say that people who believed in these things that we talked about this morning, the virgin birth, virtuous life, vicarious death, victorious resurrection, visible return, Fosdick tried to say that uh, people who believed in those things were like the stodgy Pharisees that tried to shut up the apostles. Listen, Fosdick was right about the text applying to the controversy. He was right about the text applying to the fundamentalist modernist controversy but he was not right in the way that he thought. You see, it was the Pharisees who rejected the Scriptures. It was the Pharisees who rejected the Savior. It was the Pharisees who tried to silence the saints. Harry Emerson Fosdick would have heard the sermon this morning in our church and he would have said that we were a bunch of Pharisees. But see, we're not rejecting the Scriptures. We're walking through the Scriptures and showing that the Scriptures actually show what it is we claim to believe. We're not rejecting the Scriptures. He did. We're not rejecting the Savior. He did. We're not trying to silence the saints who, come, who came preaching the doctrines of the Bible. He did. Now, I want to ask you, <clears throat> when was the last time you heard a Cumberland Presbyterian pastor, other than me, unashamedly preach the things you heard this morning? When was the last time you heard a CP pastor preach about Christ's virgin birth, virtuous life, vicarious death, victorious resurrection, and visible return? These are the doctrines that our denominational heritage was built on, and if the modernists had their way, they wouldn't be heard from pulpits ever again. 50, 60, 70 years ago, being a Cumberland Presbyterian meant that you believed these things. Nowadays, you can't guarantee that just because someone is ordained CP that they're even orthodox, let alone saved. How sad is that? If we're going to see God use our denomination once again, 
We have got to get back to the Bible. We have got to get back to what the Bible says about the essential doctrines of our Christian faith. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, I know this was long, but Lord, I hope it was helpful. Lord, your word is good even when we're not, even when I'm not. So Lord, would you send your word, would you send the, the Spirit to cause the word to come alive in our hearts this morning. Let these words soak in our hearts and souls and let us give thought to these things. And let us respond accordingly. We ask it all in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this special message. We hope you were blessed and encouraged by the preaching and teaching of God's Word. Now, may the Lord bless you, keep you, make His face to shine upon you, and give you peace. Amen.